Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm your host, Carmen LaBerge. It is Wednesday, November the 20th, 2019. Thanks for taking me along this morning. Uh, where in the word are you today? Station manager, um, network station manager, Neil Stavum actually gave a tour yesterday at the Faith Radio studios in uh, in the Twin Cities. And uh, had the opportunity to talk with one of our morning listeners, and she highlighted that uh, the where in the word question, where in the word are you today, was particularly helpful and encouraging, inspiring to her. Uh, And so I'm going to lead off with that this morning. Uh, I am in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so in this season of thanksgiving, as we are counting our blessings, as we are uh, naming them one by one, uh, I, am, I am encouraged to count every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms with which the Father has already blessed us in Christ Jesus. Some, sometimes the circumstantial blessing counting uh, here in the here and now can be challenging. Um, and can be, I mean, it, it can be hard to look back over the course of a year and and try to count up the the circumstantial blessings. But it is never challenging to count up every spiritual blessing in Christ with which God has already blessed us in our Lord and Savior in the heavenly realms. Freedom from the penalty of sin and death. Freedom from the power of sin and life. Forgiveness, a reconciled relationship with the Father. Righteousness before the eternal judge resurrection from the grave, life abundant here and now, and life eternal forevermore, adoption into a real family, a seat at the table, a room with a view, a mansion, a robe, a crown, a ring, uh, keys, unlimited all-access pass to the Father, imputed righteousness, a mediator with the judge, a mentor for the journey, an ever-present help in times of trouble, all the riches of his glorious inheritance in all the saints, every spiritual blessing in Christ, the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, The protection of the Father, the name of the Son, the power of the Spirit, the mind of Christ, the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace, wisdom, understanding, discernment, the privilege of being chosen, called, cultivated, challenged, commissioned, a life that is filled, and more importantly, a life that is fulfilled, not because of what we do, but because of what He has done and who He is. The joy of knowing who we are and whose we are. And what we're here and what we're on earth, or what on earth we're on earth to do. Every spiritual blessing in Christ, uh, grace, hope, the honor of being called a child of God, a citizen, an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I mean, uh, the very prince of peace, a co-heir with Christ, a minister of reconciliation. Uh, I mean, the very light of the world. I mean, having the very light of the world. I don't know. The list is so long of every spiritual blessing. And so as you are making a count 
during this Thanksgiving season. Let us be uh, counting up in Ephesians 1, 3, what, uh, what this list is in which God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. When we come back, I'm going to be talking with Drew Griffin about what's going on in the Middle East. Joining me now, Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine. You can follow Drew on Twitter at DG underscore NYC. Welcome back, my friend. Hey, good morning, Carmen. How are you? Good morning. I am well. It is well with my soul. How are you? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm equally well. Uh, it's well with my soul as well. So thank you. And you are um, not locked out of your building. You are not on the street. I am not on the street. I am not locked out of my building. It is it is a new day and a new week. <laughs> Things are going well. It's going to be a good Wednesday. Amen. Okay, so I read this article. Um, it's been maybe a week ago now, and I put it in a file and said, I want to talk with Drew about this the next time we have the opportunity to talk. And it is about the USCIRF, USERIF. I mean, am I pronouncing that correctly? Is that how I stick that little um, acronym all together uh, and tell us what this what this commission does and then tell us what's going on in terms of um, some transitions on this commission. Sure. Well, the um, uh, the USERF is the uh, U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, uh, which was set up as part of a um, uh, an effort in, in 1998, uh, a bill sponsored by um, the current ambassador for international religious freedom, uh, Sam Brownback, um, the uh, U.S. Commission on International Freedom was a, a commission, independent commission that was set up uh, who's uh, uh, has no real, I guess, uh, authority per se. It doesn't have the ability to levy sanctions or um, make uh, major kind of diplomatic arrangements. It is it is really just a, a watchdog group uh, that is able to to speak out on international religious freedom issues uh, from the perspective of the U.S. government and 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 uh, uh, kind of put out um, uh, statements and evaluate uh, the status of international religious freedom uh, across the, across the globe. And as an independent agency, because it isn't uh, tied to the um, you know official foreign policy apparatus or the legislative branch, it, it has a real um, nimble uh, kind of ability to uh, address uh, with extremely strong language uh, some of the um, horrendous uh, religious freedom abuses that exist um, across the globe, and it, it, it kind of indemnifies um, other branches of the U.S. government to uh, be able to negotiate uh, with foreign governments or deal with foreign governments in a diplomatic or an official way um, while still having a, an official position of the United States of condemning what's going on in those countries. And so it's it's an extremely important um, uh, institution. The commissioners, people who are appointed to this commission are uh, volunteers. Um, and so uh, they, um, uh, you know, kind of exist in that capacity to uh, inform the the uh, 
government of the United States as well as the watching world on uh, the status of religious freedom in, in other countries. What is happening now uh, is that there is an effort, and there has been an effort uh, for the last several years in Congress to uh, add uh, greater levels of uh, congressional oversight to the committee. Uh, to restrict uh, the the behavior of the uh, independent volunteer commissioners, and to uh, you know potentially affect um, uh, what this um, committee is able to say in terms of international religious freedom, um, to potentially muzzle or potentially uh, apply leverage um, against some of their um, ruling, some of their uh, pronouncements. Uh, concerning international religious freedom abroad. And so uh, recently, um, like you said, uh, two weeks ago, Christina Ariaga, one of the commissioners, actually uh, resigned in protest, saying, saying that you know, she believes that this interference uh, ultimately will, uh, will muzzle and stifle um, uh, users' ability to uh, fulfill their, their normal function. So we really see this as, a, as an effort by uh, the Congress to overreach and micromanage um, uh, an independent agency. And there are a number of, you know, under the table uh, kind of political machinations going on here of um, interests, uh, foreign interests that have some, um, you know, kind of back channel um, uh, influence with the Congress that is, is saying, hey, look, you know, if we're Saudi Arabia and here's Yusuf that's constantly, you know, judging Saudi Arabia as a regime that is uh, completely intolerant uh, uh, to religious minorities and um, is a uh, trespasser of human rights and a violator of international religious freedom, you know, it's, it's a real um, – uh, kind of, a, is there anything that can be done about this? Can we muzzle this? Can we kind of uh, stifle this down? And so it is. It seems to be um, an effort of uh, governmental kind of overreach and micromanagement. It's something definitely to watch because uh, Yusuf does, I think, um, good work, and it is a clarion moral voice uh, currently in this in this environment where that kind of um, uh, moral voice is often absent. This is one of those situations, Drew, where it just feels like no matter where you are on the political spectrum, if you're a Christian and you're interested in um, the the rights of religious minorities around the world, including Christians who are the minority population in many, many places that we're talking about right now, um, this is this is something that's an easy advocacy concern, um, again, for for folks who are Democrats and folks who are Republicans like this is this should be a universal Christian concern um, in terms of, hey, we want this U.S. commission to remain independent. We want them to have the freedom to recognize and acknowledge when there's a bad actor around the globe in terms of persecuting religious minorities. We want this commission to be free to say so without uh, having a, a concern that Congress is going to muzzle them. Um, and so uh, I just wanted to lift that up. I knew you would know more about it than I do. So thanks so much. Hey, let's take a quick break. When we come back, let's uh, let's bring people up to speed on what's happening in Israel and Iran. That's next. My conversation continuing with Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine. Continuing my conversation with Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine. You can follow Drew on Twitter at DG underscore NYC. You can find Providence Magazine at ProvidenceMag.com. Three things going on in Israel. Choose any one of them or speak to all three. There has been a shift in U.S. policy related to 
uh, Israeli settlements on the West Bank or in the West Bank. Uh, it looks as if Israel is now headed to a third election in 12 months, failing to uh, form a coalition government. And um, we've been hearing for, I don't know, days now, maybe maybe more than a week, um, about bombings but going both directions uh, between Israel and Gaza. Sure. All right. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on there. I, I probably will leave uh, the Israeli elections um, because— uh, because we it's don't know. such a yeah, it's such a confusing situation, and and honestly, uh, you know, Netanyahu himself doesn't know, so I'm I'm not going to kind of speak uh, speak into that. I think the the big lead out of this week is the announcement from Secretary Mike uh, Pompeo um, that the United States is uh, shifting its position, a position it's held for about 41 years since 1978 on um, the um, uh, legal status um, of uh, settlements, Jewish settlements in the Palestinian-controlled West Bank. Uh, This is a pretty big shift uh, in U.S. policy, and indeed it's um, a big shift kind of uh, uh, on the international stage uh, since uh, whether it's the United Nations or the European Union, um, there's uh, generally been a consensus, especially during uh, the Obama administration, uh, they shared this consensus as well, that there is um, a questionable legality, if not anything, their uh, settlements, Jewish settlements in the West Bank are, are uh, illegal land grabs, as I think is probably the, the harshest uh, form. Settlements are, um, these are, just so we know exactly what we're talking about, these are, are towns and, and cities uh, founded by um, uh, Jewish uh, settlers that, um, of land that's kind of been uh, uh, occupied by, um, uh, by the Jews and by the Israelis in the, in the West Bank. These settlements can range from uh, you know, a few hundred people to several thousand people, sometimes up to maybe uh, 30,000 people. There are around 700,000 settlers that are scattered in a whole number of settlements that kind of potmark uh, the West Bank, which is this Palestinian area controlled um, from kind of um, the Jordan River extending in a little bubble into um, into Israel, and so this is a this is a major step uh, on the part of the United States. It's a huge boon for the uh, uh, Netanyahu um, uh, administration, and it is a um, um, I think a big shift. I think there's um, many critics of what Pompeo has announced are basically saying that this threatens what is called the two-state solution. It's this idea that that um, there can be two independent states, one Palestinian and one Israeli, uh, Palestinians controlling the West Bank, Israel controlling Israel, and that these, you know, kind of uh, states would exist with full political autonomy, independent of one another um, in this same space, and that the settlements are a threat to that. I think it's um, I mean, that's a common critique. Uh, however, I, the reality on the ground and when you go there and when you visit Israel and when you visit the West Bank is uh, that uh, the presence of these Israelis in these settlements um, is not likely to change. Uh, the presence of the Palestinians in the West Bank is not likely to change. So in one way or another, I believe, um, these uh, groups are going to have to find a way to uh, coexist. We have a, a piece uh, in Providence that we published earlier this week uh, by George Asusa, um, Jewish citizens in a future democratic Palestine. He asked the question, and he uh, proposes this idea called the Dual Democracy Initiative, um, which is the idea that uh, Jewish settlers living in uh, Palestinian-controlled areas could be um, – uh, 
have a certain amount of autonomy in a Palestinian state, that they could exist within a Palestinian state and it would not negate uh, the, um, uh, the validity of that Palestinian state. So I think there are a number of, of ways forward. Um, I think it's uh, a big step on the part of the Trump administration to recognize uh, the legitimacy of these uh, of these settlements, and it certainly is going to, um, I think, maybe change the balance at least um, uh, for the short time uh, going forward. Okay. Um- I'm going to just direct people to the piece that is posted at ProvidenceMag.com because the uh, it's excellent um, and it's entitled Jewish Citizens in a Future Democratic Palestine. Uh, it's just really an excellent piece. I don't know. It's been up about a week. Uh, really, really well done uh, and appreciate that. Let's pivot toward Iran. I want to spend a couple sure. of minutes talking about what is going on there and and how surprised I am at how little media coverage it's getting. Right. So there are protests uh, that are occurring in Iran that have been occurring uh, really for the past uh, four or five days or the past uh, four or five years, kind of depending on when you uh, what you uh, qualify as protest. But the latest kind of flare up uh, in Iran is due to the fact that um, uh, in response to U.S. sanctions uh, since 2017, when the United States withdrew from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran deal, um, the Trump administration began to um, impose sanctions on uh, Iran uh, for the the purpose of um, you know punishing them for their kind of nuclear uh, ambitions. Uh, many of these sanctions have caused um, uh, tremendous uh, uh, financial strain on the Iranian government, and they have um, uh, recently uh, raised um, tariffs and taxes on fuel from anywhere up to fifty to three hundred percent. This has caused mass uh, protests in Iran. Um, and in response to those protests, the Iranian government has shut down all um, uh, Internet access, which is one of the reasons why uh, it's hard to get information and, and coverage about what's going on. Is that It's hard to get information out of Iran currently. Uh, it's, it's difficult for the protesters to communicate from one another. Uh, this is a major crackdown on the part of Iran. Uh, the Iranian regime. And I think it shows uh, a real um, trepidation on their part, a real fear uh, that they view these protests as a threat, that they see their position weakening, um, that these protests are becoming more and more violent, more and more widespread. Um, and as such, they are using harsher and harsher measures to put these uh, protests down um, uh, because they view their position as weakening. Um, uh, Iran is, is, is a complicated uh, situation. I wish we had more time to talk about it. There's, there's a whole host of, of um, uh, topics we could discuss with its influence in the, the region of the Middle East. Uh, but currently, this is, this is something I think we should be watching. Uh, we should be mindful of the many Christians uh, that live in Iran. They're, the word out of Iran is that there's a burgeoning and growing um, uh, exponentially a Christian community there. Um, that obviously is growing in, in one of the most uh, repressive regimes in the world. Um, despite that, so uh, definitely keep uh, you know Christ- Christians in mind in, in your prayers as you watch these stories of protests um, and the rising death toll uh, throughout Iran. Yeah, we actually we've talked on a couple of occasions, um, particularly uh, related to a book called Kingdom unleashed uh that in iran we we see the fastest the the place where the church is growing at the most rapid rate i mean the fastest you know fastest growth rate in the world in terms of 
of Christianity is in Iran. Now, part of that is because there were so few Christians to begin with. So, right, so you can have a pretty uh, accelerated growth rate if you're starting with very few. But it's a right. uh, it's a very historic body of believers, and God is uh, is coming to people in visions and dreams, and it's just really extraordinary. So, yeah, thank you for that really important reminder about what's happening uh, in Iran, and let uh, we will certainly be praying with you. Uh, about what is happening not only in Iran and Israel, but across the Middle East and in every place where people live as uh, religious minorities persecuted by um, the governments under which they currently live. Drew Griffin, thank you so much for joining us today. You can, you guys can check out what he is doing at ProvidenceMag.com. We'll be right back. So next up, we're going to talk about babies. Babies are so great, right? So we're going to talk about um, fertility rates. That doesn't sound nearly as exciting as talking about babies. Uh, We're also going to talk about declining uh, fertility rates. That just means people aren't having as many babies in some places around the world. Um, And I'm just going to come right out and say that where I live and the environments where I find myself uh, there's just lots of babies, lots of people having lots of babies. And so I do think that when we have these conversations about who's having kids and when are people having kids and where are people having kids and what does it mean for the future of humanity uh, and what does it mean for the environment? Because that is another part of this conversation. This is so contextual. This conversation is uh, is so contextual and depending where you live and the value system of not only that place, but the value system in which you are raising your own family generation to generation. This is a huge part of this conversation. This is why I'm having it with Peter Kapsner, because what we are reading in, uh, in you know, in frankly liberal dominated headlines is that we should be having fewer babies. In fact, there's just way too many people on the globe and we should, you know, get a handle on that. And that in some places people are choosing not to have babies and then the the future of those nations is literally at risk, um, like Denmark in particular. Uh, and, and so we're going to talk about, well, what are the prevailing worldviews that uh, that are moving things in particular directions? And then as Christians, you know, why do we view babies as good? Like, why are babies good? All right, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Peter Kapsner is my guest. Planning Thanksgiving dinner is no small task. There is so much to think about. What are we going to serve? When should we start cooking? What time is everyone coming over? And who's going to sit where? Hi, this is Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. You know what my secret is to a less stress holiday dinner? A plan. One that details everything that needs to be done, who's going to do it, and by when. Once you have a plan, you can relax and enjoy the process instead of stressing out over every little detail. You know, you could say the same thing about your finances. If you create a strategy that includes what you need and what you want to share with others, you'll be prepared. Just make sure it's connected to your faith and God's plan for your life. Once you have a financial strategy, you'll be ready for what comes next. Then you can sit down to life's table and enjoy the fruits of your labor and live a more content, confident, and generous life.
So I am going to start introducing Peter Kapsner as the co-host of a new podcast called The Till. And today, if you were to go to SoundCloud and look for The Till podcast, uh, you will find the very first episode, So the Tilling Begins, co-hosted by Peter Kapsner and uh, somebody named Carmen LaBerge. So there you go. Indeed. Yeah, indeed. It was, it's been four fun. Four people to, have already listened to it. Four people. That's four more four than people. yesterday. So that's, uh, and that's we have exciting. one like, but it's me. So if you would log <laughs> on and like our really podcast, count. that would be great. Well, during the break, you were telling me about this newfangled thing called Twitter. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and I understand yeah. like some people follow people on this platform. So I'm going to try, uh, I think back in the day, Logan Roush, a former producer here at Faith Radio, set up a Twitter account for me. And I'm trying to figure out how to unlock this thing, Carmen. So I will become so, relevant sometime in the next 48 hours. So here's how I know that that Dr. Peter Kapsner on Twitter is you, because Dr. (laughs) Peter Kapsner's account follows three people and has three followers, and I am one of each of those lists. So <laughs> I've been following you religiously, Carmen, you every almost, tweet. You, you are almost going to become relevant. I almost am there. It's really an exciting okay. moment in my life. Yeah, crazy. thresholdly for sure. Peter Kapsner and I are here today to talk about the end of babies. Mm. This is a very dramatic headline. I mean, to just to declare that it's possible that we have reached the point in time, particularly in the in what I would just describe as the quote unquote first world, uh, that, you know, we've just reached the point where we've just recognized it's just silly to have babies anymore because people are a threat to the environment. Yeah, I mean, it really is a first world problem too, Carmen. I mean, we're we're talking we're only a generation or two maybe into the idea that you could even have an option to not have children because children mm. were almost sort of required by families to in order to be able to work the land, to have sustenance, to just take care uh, of our basic needs. And so this is really a first world issue when it comes down to the kind of words like convenience. Do I want to have kids because is it going to be convenient for me? Do I want to have kids because uh, it's going to sort of take me out of the rhythm of life? Well, the different reasons for having kids are, have really, they've really shifted in a, in a generation. And it certainly is a first world issue, but you referenced the fact it's not everywhere. And you and I were talking about this off air that even in the church that you're at, you you have like gigantic Huge sort families. of minivans and, and you know yeah. filled with families and how different that is as well. I mean, I asked you to send me some photos of your parking lot because you're talking like eight, ten kids in a lot of these families, right? Oh yeah, the benders have twelve. Like a, you know, and I, I mean, like, right? I mean, I like think about the people in my church, and I'm like, well, and some of them have not only um, you know children that they have brought into the world. Um, you know, as their biological offspring, but lots of families who also have foster and adopted kids. And so really um, diverse families uh, as well. And so it's an interesting, it's interesting to read these headlines where people are making these choices to not have children. Like it's a, it's an intentional choice on the part of a lot of people. And then there's this delayed marriage issue and the, the issue of a rising percentage of people who are single and those single people are obviously, you know, not having babies in any sort of traditional um, sense. And so we're, we have this we have like three layers of challenge here, yeah. dropping fertility rates in places like Denmark, where it's become like kind of critical, which is uh, singleness has become more normative, more couples deliberately choosing childlessness uh, and then couples who want to have a family, but they want to have it on their timeline and they wait too long to have kids and so um, in Denmark, you're right, there's this generational, it's in one generation, this dramatic shift has taken place, and they really are in a crisis. They they are not at the, anywhere close to the replacement rate in terms of people having 
a sufficient number of babies for the nation to actually continue to exist. But at the same time we're having that conversation, we've got a headline in the Washington Post just a couple of days ago that, um, you know, environmental scientists around the world are basically saying not only do people need to stop having babies, but we got to get rid of a lot of the people who are already here. Like, you know, people are a problem to the environment. And I think that as Christians, we have to stop when we read those headlines. We have to stop and we have to say to ourselves, okay, God created uh, this this planet to be populated by people, and God created a sufficiency of resources, um, and so to not only sustain us, but gave us then the stewardship of this creation as our responsibility. And so every time when I read in one of these articles, Peter, that they're they're having these aha moments that there's a relationship between people and children hmm. and and the environment, I'm like, mm-hmm, that is a really old story. That actually comes from Genesis. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you hit on a key point that is driving a lot of this conversation right now. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman out of New York, is sort of representative of a new way of thinking. I'm not saying it's a better way of thinking. I'm just saying these are new conversations people are having where through a fair amount of fear related to whether or not our Earth has enough resources to sustain a certain population base. She has come outright and said, "I, I think we need to stop having children. And she is, again, representative of what's going on in Japan or what has been going on in Japan, what you referenced in Denmark, where there really is a fear that if we continue to grow in population, we will overwhelm the globe and lead to sort of global catastrophe with all of the global warming. And I think it's fair to at least have some responsible conversations, not any different than a family might, that that says, you know, we probably can sustain a family of three or four or five or six kids or whatever it turns out to be and wonder about the the resource ratio versus the number of children you have in a household so that you can adequately care for everyone. But I think the fear that's going on related to all of this right now, that is, I know, driving some of the young people that I work with day in and day out in the classroom, There, this is one of the layers. There's a lot of reasons why they're not having children, but but uh, fear is probably a primary one in saying, I don't even know that there's going to be an earth in 20 years and 30 years. When we see these headlines that say we have 11 years or whatever it is before mm-hmm. the globe melts down, it, it sort of reminds me of kind of these cultic religious sects that have said over time, well, we've read the Mayan calendar and we know for sure the earth is going to end at this time. We actually in my class that when, when the Mayan calendar thing was uh, all abuzz, we in our class had the, the Mayan calendar in the corner of the screen the entire term. And the students were saying, I don't even know if I'm going to do my finals at this point because the world is ending. We, we've all had these prognostications that are really based in fear. How do we know that the earth is going to end in 11 years, nine years, seven years, the tipping point? We've been talking about this stuff forever. But at the same time, I think it's fair to say, what does a responsible conversation look like related to how we use the resources that God has entrusted with us in this world so that we can have people flourishing around the world and and be thoughtful about it? I'm going to encourage people to read Matthew 24 as a part of this conversation, um, because I do think that being sober about the end times and knowing what Jesus has said about it is an important reminder in the context of this conversation. Uh, And then I also think that we need to remind uh, ourselves and one another that um, God literally holds all of this in the very hollow of his hand. uh, And and God loves babies. I mean, he he conceives he conceives of people in his wildest imagination before the foundations of the earth. Uh, And so much of the conversation that we are reading or overhearing, it is interesting how there are these transcendental themes there are these there are these themes that emerge these threads um, where secular people will acknowledge there's a bigger story here but then they miss the bigger story 
Um, they recognize that there's this internal yearning to have a child, but they don't have any way to um, to attach that. They talk about these relationships that we have with the natural world and one another, um, but they don't have anywhere, um, you know, they don't have anywhere to put that because they don't have the language um, of of the meta narrative of reality. Right. They're operating out of um, a, a worldview that is devoid of the truth in terms of these things. So it's a fascinating um, conversation. And I think that it is one that as Christians, we need to be engaged in um, and we need to be thinking through, like, what is the value of a child and the commodification that goes on today um, is is not right. It's not about, you know, us having children to fulfill some sense of unmet need in our own lives. It's about having children because God has blessed us to do so. Well, and I think the concern here, Carmen, too, is you're talking through all of this so effectively about what's happening. Is is this going to change our view of children? I mean, historically, to have a child across culture, across generation, is almost always a, a source of just profound and unfettered joy. And if we're going to start looking at children as, as you said, resources and the commodification of them, which is clearly part of what's happening, or if we start looking at them as saying, you know what, uh, you should not be having children. You are maybe putting the future of the globe at risk. We're going to change our eyesight towards kids already. And that and that's been happening. And I think that's the greatest concern, right, in this whole situation is we take something that should be so joyful. And even Jesus saying things like, let the little children come to me, because within them, in, in the beauty and wonder and the wide-eyed sort of vision of their life, you, you see what life can be like in the kingdom. You, you see kids that just are free of fear uh, at such early times in life. And it gives you a vision of what the kingdom is supposed to to be like, and if we turn all of that and say that kids are actually something to be discarded or something to not be desired, it's going to shift the way we see the world on so many different levels. Okay, we're gonna um, we're gonna continue on this subject. We got to take a quick break, um, and then I know you want to talk about C- Colin Kaepernick. So we're gonna we are coming back to the subject for a brief minute right after the break, and then we're pivoting toward the ball field. That That's sounds up good. Next. That's up next. Your mornings with Carmen. confusion in the culture today about uh, the meaning of life and the value of children um, and concerns about the population around the globe. And so I, I'd read two different articles that really led the conversation into wildly different directions. Um, one of them was from the Washington Post related to the need to uh, bring the the global population down like dramatically, like maybe by half. Um, and obviously not not reproducing in the midst of that in order to, quote unquote, save the world. Um, and then another article related to the crisis that Denmark is facing um, because they're not having enough babies. And so they have fallen well below the replacement rate uh, in terms of their population. And and for such a long period of time that literally their nation risks uh you know, not existing anymore. It's an existential threat yep. to not have enough babies. And so um, I bring that up today, Peter, because one of the observations that is made in both articles um, is this uh, this commitment that people have, uh, this growing commitment um, to work, like to, to actually doing something that they think is going to create meaning um, and give their life some value that's related to work or production versus 
being people whose personal production is to produce a new generation of people. Yeah, you that, really, that shift is dramatic. It is dramatic, Carmen. It really is. The idea that you would find identity and purpose in work, and, and I think it's, it's relatively new on the scene to, to suggest uh, words like calling when it relates to a certain kind of vocation. I don't know that a few generations ago people would say things like, I've been called to be a blacksmith. Or I've been called to be a cobbler or, you know, some of the the village needs that were fulfilled just simply by people living in community. They weren't thinking of vocation and call as much as what we use now where there's such a meaninglessness that has taken shape in many first world countries. And it's primarily due to sort of this hyper individualism, which is you need to make your way forward. You need to find yourself. You need to be whatever you want to be. And in all of that, when you're setting people loose from a bigger story, whether that story be family, community, culture, or in our case as believers, as part of the big story of God's redemptive activity in this world, if you can't find your sense of self located in those places, then you can't find meaning unless you sort of somehow derive it from what you're doing and that's what people are doing. They, they find meaning in their work. And uh, it's, it's a illusory meaning. It's a delusional meaning on some level, because how many of us actually end up in the kind of work where we do something for 40 or 50, 60 years, and it just so utterly satisfies the soul? And so it, it's an interesting idea um, to be trying to find personal meaning in what you're accomplishing. And the downside of that is I think you and I both know and anybody who has a family that having kids isn't going to be it's not meant to be like this easy thing where it's sort of Disney World all day long. And yet I was with a friend last night who has four kids as well. And we were reflecting a bit on how unbelievably meaningful having kids has been and how much it has shaped us and how much it has changed us. And uh, all of this language of the kingdom about becoming an other centered person and and willing to sacrifice and experiencing again the sort of unfettered free love back and forth between child and parent there there's just beautiful realities of the kingdom i'm not suggesting we find meaning in our kids but what i am suggesting is a meaningful life is to be participating in god's ever unfolding redemptive ki- uh, kingdom and the future of that kingdom is within the children that are going to be birthed. And that's one of the most exciting things. I know there's a lot of issues that our young people are facing, but I'm going to be speaking at chapel here a little later this morning at Northwestern. And one of the things we'll talk about is I have a a growing confidence that the next generation is going to have a bit of a Josiah moment where there's going to be this sort of rediscovery of a way of kingdom life in the midst of their sexuality, in the midst of family, in the midst of purpose, where that there can be a renewal among them. And this is how God's kingdom works. And so if we sort of despise our future in that way or say our future isn't worth it, uh, and all of this kind of language that's happening right now, we're actually saying something about the kingdom. It's like it ends with us and we're going to find meaning only in our own lives. It's interesting that you reference uh, Josiah. Uh, you know, that's entirely based on the rediscovery of the Word of God. Yep. And so, you know, maybe we just uh, maybe we just elevate that and um, pray for that, asking God to bring revival by helping people rediscover His Word. Um, because when you do rediscover the Word of God, you suddenly are reintroduced to the King and you yes. discover the kingdom principles, and then you want to live in alignment with that. So, all right, we're going to have to um, talk about Colin Kaepernick on another day or maybe in another uh, forum or format. Um, so we could maybe do that on next week's The Till. That sounds great. Wherever we can find it, that's a great conversation. We don't yet know where we can find it, but, um, but <laughs> I'm gonna, Peter Capster. I'm getting on and, Twitter. You know that, Carmen. I'm becoming relevant good. here later today. Yeah, you're going to find him at Dr. Peter Capsner at some point in time. Hey, Peter, thanks so much. Always great to be with you. Likewise. All right. 
Uh, we got we got a whole other hour ahead, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. Okay, I'm going to do a quick syllogism here because um, one of the things that I just discussed with Peter Kapsner made me recognize that if what we want to see um, is a, is a, a restoration, maybe a reclamation uh, of the kingdom principles here in the midst of the kingdoms of this world, then you know we sort of have to work work ourselves backwards. Like we want to see that we want to see kingdom principles operating in our conversations. Um, let's say in in the political realm. But if we work our way back, then that means that culture has to be transformed because politics is, is downstream from culture. And in order for culture to be transformed, the church has to be taking her rightful place in the life of the culture. And in order for the church to be taking her rightful place in the life of the culture, the word of God has to be restored to its rightful place in the life of the church. In order for that to happen, the word of God has to be restored to its rightful place in the life of every believer. That's you and me. So back to where we began. Where in the word are you today? Um, because if we are not in the word and the word of God is not in us, and if the word of God is not coming out of us when the world presses up against us, then we are not um, acting as the kinds of agents of grace or ambassadors of the kingdom and, and the king that we're really called to be. So sort of a backward syllogism. Uh, but there you go. It all starts with being in the word in order that the word might be in us, in order that we might be in the world in ways that honor Jesus. we got another hour up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.